Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, as we round out the study of the second chapter of Genesis... Lord, we deal this morning with a subject that is true, that draws back all the way to the beginning, and yet, because of our handling of it over the years, can bring about some degree of pain. I pray that there will be comfort this morning. And I pray strength, I ask for hope, Father, and I pray that your word will be that for us, will be a balm for our souls and our spirits And bring us into a deeper faith with you. For truly, Lord, that's what this is all about. Faith in Jesus. So I ask that you bless the study. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and our minds with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of the day, the sixth day, chapter 1, verse 31, tells us God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. However, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, as he is called, beginning in the fourth verse of chapter 2 and all the way through chapters 2 and 3. It's now not just Elohim as we talked about Wednesday night. It's Yahweh Elohim, the first name of God. God is now on a personal name basis as he reveals himself and shares himself in all this. But suddenly, Yahweh Elohim, who called all things very good, sees something that is not good. A single, unattended issue at the end of creation for man is alone. Man is alone. And that's not good. We were created as social beings. From the most introverted to the most extroverted among us, we were created as social beings. We have need for one another. We were not created to be isolated or insulated or secluded or segregated. Life is meant to be interpersonal. We were made for each other, you could say that. I know that sounds like a romantic sentiment. We were made for each other. And often that's the kind of thing you hear during the infatuation stage of the relationship. We were made for each other. Until further into the relationship where one says to the other, I don't know who you were made for. No, we were made for relationship. We were made for companionship. We we were made for love and to be loved and to love. That's why God created us. Life is meant to be, again, interpersonal. And you can add that to the list. Last Sunday we were talking about how we're created in the image and according to the likeness of God, who himself exists in triune fellowship. Think about that. That's who God is. And we're like him in that way. That, that, that we're triune in body, soul, and spirit. That we're eternal, like God is eternal. We're spiritual, like God who is spirit. We're responsible, that is, we have a, a rule, a responsibility, a dominion over the earth. And we are, like our God, relational. We're made like Him. And that's why Genesis one twenty seven tells us, male and female, He created them. As opposed to just, he created him. Or he created her. No, he created them because to truly be in the image of God, we have to be in relationship. And you can't be in relationship by yourself. Now, before we get to the rib, 
Don't miss God's intentions. I want to jump right in. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable. That phrase is used twice in the entire Bible. And both times in this chapter, right here and down in verse 20 again, a helper suitable. I will make a helper suitable, he says, and then he made a helper suitable, it says. Kind of how the Bible works. He says, I'm going to do it, then he does it. Then we think about the fact that he did what he said he was going to do. (laughs) I will make a helper suitable. I want to break that down. The word helper is etzer. E-Z-E-R, so it's easy to remember, one who serves, one who strengthens, I will make, don't get this wrong, I will make a strengthening servant. Some of you ladies are going, okay, this is already not going well. (laughs) Etzer is the word in the Hebrew. We see that word, in fact, you may have heard it put together with another word. Around Christmas time, we hear it a lot, Ebenezer. Ebenezer in English, we transliterate it as a grumpy old man. But in the scriptures, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, the prophet Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizpah and Shin, and named it Ebenezer, stone of help. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. God is the helper in the Bible. He is called helper. In the psalm, Psalm 54, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Who else is called helper in the Scriptures? Well, again, it's the Lord God, the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And that's what my wife often does with me as my helper. She brings to my remembrance all the things that I forget. Honey, did you take care of this? Oh yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. John 15, 26, when the helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. To be a helper is a most holy thing. To be a helper, ladies, listen, to be a helper to a man is to be like the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the number one thing, the best thing a helper does is testify about Jesus. So wives... Remind your husbands about Jesus. Behave toward your husbands like Jesus. Show him, talk about, reveal Jesus to him, and you will be like the helper. And this is not just any helper, by the way. This is a suitable helper. The word suitable is connecto. I love this word. It means toward him, facing him, corresponding to him, or comparable to him. It's... Mano e womano. It's face to face. And literally it means facing. We would say that. We would say face to face. Other translations include the King James refers to her as a helpmeet. A helpmeet. I never liked that. It sounds like a double cheeseburger. Y'all like the helpmeet with extra sauce and cheese, please? But it's actually quite good because a help meet is a helper who meets him where he is. The Living Bible calls her a companion suited to his needs. The Septuagint refers to this or translates this a helper correspondent to himself. And the Amplified Bible says a helper meet, suitable, adapted, completing. A helper who meets him where he is. God created a helper who meets Adam where he is. That Eve would be comparable to him, face to face with him, walking alongside him, reminding him of his relationship with the Lord. So what's the cause of all the male-female conflict? What's the problem? He was created, she was created to be with him, to walk alongside him, to help him, and yet conflict, conflict, conflict... And the very simple answer to that is sin. Sin, male and female sin, caused the breach. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll get to this perhaps Wednesday night, 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And that's a curse. Some of you wives are going, you're not kidding. No, I mean seriously. This is a curse. This was not the created order. This came in after the woman sinned. The man has his own penance, his own payback, his own uh, consequence for his sin. But the woman's consequence is that her desire would be for her husband, and the implication is her desire would be to be in charge of her husband. Yet he will rule over you. See the conflict? She wants to rule. He's going to rule. Head to head we go instead of face to face. Which was how we were created to function. How were we, we were created to be. It was a curse. And in Jesus Christ, listen, the curse is lifted. We no longer have to be in conflict. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And one, guess what? We can walk together in fellowship once again. Because we are comparable, because we are face to face, because we are one, united with a single purpose. That's the idea. Yeah, but Rick, doesn't the New Testament say the husband is head of the wife? Oh, you read that, did you? (laughs) Well, let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's just sort this out for a moment. If we are all one in Christ Jesus, how is it then that the head is uh, the husband is head of the wife? Ephesians chapter 5. After that, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. So if you want to plan ahead, you can do that. Ephesians 5 and then 1 Corinthians 11. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, Rick, it says the verse before that, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I know, I just want to make this a little more difficult at first, okay? Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Okay, stop right there. How is the church subject to Christ? Is that a bad thing? Do we hate being subject to Christ? Are we uncomfortable with being in that kind of a relationship with Jesus? Or do we appreciate it? Do we welcome it? Do we desire it to be in subjection to Jesus? Now, I'm not a wife, so I don't get that side of it, ladies. But I'll tell you what, I get being in subjection to Jesus, and I want that. I desire that. I am safe in that. I'm comforted. I'm strengthened. I'm built up when I'm in subjection to Jesus. And that's the picture that Paul uses. Of course, then he goes on in verse 25 and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Sisters, does that sound like a bad deal? That you should be glorified, honored, holy, blameless, cared for, nurtured, protected, that you should have a husband who would give himself, his life, for you. Now again, this is the picture that Paul is painting for us, but if I may be so bold, this kind of sanctifying subjection is only offensive to a woman who does not want to be holy and blameless. Well, that's easy for you to say, Rick, you're a man. I understand. But it's the same with the man. It is the same with the man. This doesn't work. Husbands, listen to me. This does not work when you're a selfish brute. So stop it. Love your wife as Christ 
loves the church and gave himself up for her. Ladies, be in subjection to that and you will find yourself holy and blameless and glorious with no spot or wrinkle or any defect. Spiritually. I don't want anyone coming to me and saying, well, I've tried. Look! (laughs) You know what? We have confused role with rule. We have confused responsibility with authority. This is a big problem, even in Christian marriages, because we get these two wrong. We all have roles. You realize that. Male and female, we have roles in our marriages. And in our relationships, male and female, we have responsibilities that we have been given by God, our father and in his own wisdom. But you know what? There's only one rule and authority for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that is Christ Jesus. He's the rule and the authority. So husbands, you're not the ruler of your wife. You're the head of your wife as Christ is the head of of the church. But you're not the boss. See, because she is a helper suitable. That means we are made face to face. She is comparable to you. And in some ways, she's a little brighter sometimes. I don't know. We are meant to walk together. And when we walk together in Jesus, it works. Jesus is the key to this. 1 Corinthians, go over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So go to the left of Ephesians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And pick this up in verse 3. Where Paul speaks not only to one church, but to another now. Instead of Ephesus, he's talking to Corinth. And he says in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Okay, so if God is the head of Christ and man is the head of woman, how is the relationship between God and Christ? Do you suppose that's a good relationship? (laughs) So should be the relationship between a man and a woman. Because that's the model. God and Christ. And and then Paul talks about a woman praying or prophesying with her head covered. And and there's a cultural thing there. And we could talk about that. But that's not the point that I want to get to right now. Skip down to verse 8. Paul says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. She's the helper suitable. She was made from him. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, think about what that really is saying. In essence, the woman wasn't the one in need. The man was. We needed you. This is not a bad thing. And it's so amazing how when sin is the lens through which we read the Bible, when we read it under the curse, that doesn't sound very good. Woman was made for the man's sake. Who wrote this? Male chauvinist Paul, that's who... No, no. You know what? When you look at Paul through the lens of sin, yeah, he's a chauvinist bigot. When you look at him through the lens of grace and you understand what's really being said, he speaks truth. He speaks a beautiful truth. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's another conversation for another time. But, verse 11. In the Lord, and by the way, we've studied through this, and if you want to look into that further, just go online. We did talk about this when we studied 1 Corinthians 11. Lord willing, we'll come around to it again. But, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Why? Because we're comparable. We're face to face. We need each other. We were made for this. For relationship. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things, and this is the point, all things originate from God. He's the source. He's the originator, the ruler, the authority, and where Jesus is recognized as your head, oneness is always the goal. By the way, that works for the church as well as in a marriage. Where Jesus is recognized as the authority, as the head, our goal is unity. It's oneness. When we begin to dismiss Him as our authority, when we ignore Him as our authority, we tend to break apart because we want to follow whichever authority we think is better than the other. There's only one, and that's Jesus. There's only one originator, and that's the Lord. Now, last week we looked at our uniqueness in all creation. That's in Genesis chapter 1. We studied through that. You can go back there now, Genesis chapter 2. 
But here's the thing. Genesis chapter 2 is a little different in that it gives the Lord God's personally intimate formation and creation of Adam and Eve. So, Genesis 2 dives back into day 6. So we're talking about in Genesis chapter 2, not a different account of creation, but a more specific, a more intimate account, where again, the Lord God is doing the creating, not just God Elohim, more vague or more general as in the first chapter, but now it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, it's God with, with name creating, and it's more personal and more intimate. And we looked at this on Wednesday night. But I want to remind you, if you weren't here, that the man did come first. Simply in order. He was made first. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Down in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And just to bring you up to speed, Eden was probably bigger than the garden. Eden was probably the entire location of Mesopotamia, which means between the rivers. That whole area was Eden, and then in Eden, to the east of Eden, God planted the garden and put man in it. You know, it's not that important that you think the whole thing was Eden, the Garden of Eden was the whole area, or it was just one area in Eden. But the idea is this, and understand this, that Adam was created and formed outside the garden. Eve was created and formed inside the garden. Which already says something about her beauty. Like the beauty of the garden, so is the beauty of the woman created in that little paradise itself. And the woman was created in response to the great need of the man. Men think it's weak to say that we have a need. We have a great need. And woman is brought alongside to be the suitable helper to meet that need. So that again, we can walk together. Someone to be face to face, hand to hand, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart. That's the, the beautiful picture that God made for us. By the way, God knew that the man had a great need just by looking at him. <laughs> this is very good. This is not good. Not man, but his aloneness. And the Lord knew this. He always knows, even before we do. I don't think Adam had even yet figured it out. In fact, I can prove it to you. I will in just a moment. Adam needed to be convinced that he had a need. God already knew that he had a need, and that's the way it is with the Lord. Psalm 38, verse 9. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. We think we're in this alone. Well, we were not made to be alone, and God is completely aware of our size and our needs and our difficulties. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So He knew the need. He saw the need. By the way, if God already knows the need, why do we pray? Why waste our breath? You know, He already knows what's going on in your life. Why pause and kneel down and spend any time with Him at all? See, that's why. To spend time with Him. Because God is relational and interpersonal just as we are. We don't pray to get what we think He doesn't know we need. We pray to be with Him. We bring our needs before Him, yes, but we pray to be in His presence. It is, you know what, the act of prayer itself, being in the presence of God itself, is greater than anything we ever say when we pray. The point is being with. Last night, was with my family. We had the greatest time. Just laughing and, and enjoying being together. And we're all sitting around in the living room. And I, I told Cheryl when we went to bed last night, I said, you know, I was thinking back several years ago. It was a Thanksgiving. And the kids were little and they were running around. And I think we were having more friends over and there were going to be kids all over the house. And she said, are you up for this? And I said, I love this. I love the energy. I love the kids running around. It reminds me of when I was a kid at Thanksgiving. I just love having all the family here. And here last night... We had a full house and it was it was fun. 
And it was joyful. And it was just the togetherness. And it wasn't what we were doing or what we were saying. It's that we were together. And that's what prayer is. That's the Lord's heart. Hey, come and talk to me about it. Yeah, you know what I need. Just take care of it. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a dynamic far beyond what we say. We don't pray to change his heart or change his mind. We pray to change ours. And to recognize that he really is the one in control. So the Lord God knows Adam's need before Adam himself does. But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, dude, you lonely. You're not making it. No, he lets man figure it out. Why? Because when we realize our need, it brings us to our knees. And that's right where the Lord wants us. Not groveling, not bootlicking. As far as I know, God doesn't have boots. It brings us to our knees to come into His presence. So, with Adam, the Lord God, ever the teacher, establishes the male-female interpersonal need from the very beginning, verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what He would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And this didn't have to take weeks or months or years. Now stop and think about this. Because it's one of the things that people bring as a criticism. This had to take a long time naming all the animals and getting around each and every one. Well, for one thing, understand that early on, there were not as many animals as we have right now. And that's not a cop-out. It's just true. We have all kinds of variations within species. Just look at the kingdom of dogs. How many different kind of dogs do we have? And how many dogs have we tweaked? I mean, there's some weird ones out there. Dogs that can go into holes to, you know, get rabbits. Dogs that can bend themselves in half. I mean, it's just weird stuff. And we've done that. But in the beginning, I'm thinking there was probably a dog. And his companion, two dogs, two cats, two mice, two little baby elephants, just two. (laughs) Who just said yay? Did you say yay, Sam? You like elephants? Little baby elephants? Okay. Yay. Anyway, think this through with me. It was Henry Morris in his book, The Creation Record, or The the Genesis Record. Great book. Um, He said it's not unreasonable to suggest Adam could note and name about ten kinds each minute. Which, I mean, think about that. You give a name, you give a name, you give a name. You have a few seconds with each one as they're marching by. Oh, let's call this that. Let's call this that. If you can do ten names a minute, that would be 3,000 kinds in five hours. So, this is not unreasonable. But what a parade. Can you imagine Adam, he's there, I don't know, sitting under a tree with his feet out in the garden, just watching him walk by. Let's call this that. Let's, oh, here are some great names. And he came up with some doozies. By the way, what language did Adam speak? What was the first language? I submit to you, and I am not a linguist, but I think it was Hebrew. And I, I think that's cool to think, but it's more than just that I think it's cool. There's evidence that it was Hebrew that Adam actually spoke, that that started the whole ball rolling. Because we know that every name given before Babel and the multiplication of languages in chapter 11, every name given only has meaning in Hebrew. That's interesting. We also know that every word play from Genesis 1 through 11 before all the multiple languages, every wordplay we see only makes sense in Hebrew. It wouldn't make sense in another language. As for example, verse 23. The man now said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's not because Adam looked at her and went, whoa, man. <laughs> it's because... Woman in Hebrew is Ish-shah, and man in Hebrew is Ish. 
so she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And it's a Hebrew wordplay. It doesn't work in other languages. I actually, woe man and man works <laughs> for me. I think it's funny. But in the Hebrew language, what about chapter 3, verse 20? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, in English, that makes no sense. Eve, the mother of all the living. Well, what, what does Eve have to do with living? Well, in the Hebrew, her name is Hava, which means life. He called her life. Because she's the mother of life. Hava. So it was actually Adam and Hava, not Adam and Eve. There you go. Hebrew. Just, just putting that out there for you. But back to the animal parade. What if we had named the animals? Can you imagine the fun that we could have had naming the animals? I, I have some suggestions for you. I think for a seagull, we should call it a beach chicken. <laughs> Kangaroos? Velocirabbits. You know that? Raccoons are trash pandas. That's easy. Now, a tarantula, you would just name Nope. Sea turtles could be Grumpy McSnackface. Not a bad one. Ostriches. Oh, I like this. Pantsless Thunder Goose. Think about those. Grizzly bear, that'd be a furry nope. Snake, danger noodle. And then your basic pet dog would be Sad Eyes Von Gimme Food. See, so there are different things that we could have named all the animals. But in verse 20, as Adam's doing this, it says, But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. He went through them all. Some have suggested, and I think it's a good suggestion, that as he was going through the naming of the animals, he saw a male and female of every one. And he started to look around and realize, they all have someone. I got nothing. It's just me here. And God knew what Adam needed. God knew what he was about to do, but he let Adam come to it. I so appreciate that about God. Think about in your life what He's allowed you to come to. He's allowed you to comprehend. He's allowed you to understand. And there are times where we're saying, God, why don't you just tell me? Why don't you just show me right now what you're doing? Because what He's doing is bigger than the answer. What He's doing is working your heart and your faith and your life. He's bringing you to a better place than you would be if He just told you right up front, this is what I'm doing. Oh, thanks. Okay, now I'll be about my business. He's working in our lives and he's allowing us to learn and grow. And by the way, with Adam, this did more than one thing. This initiated his dominion over the animals. That was part of what he was doing because to name something is to be an authority over it. And so he's naming the animals as they go by and God is giving man the opportunity here on day six, giving him the opportunity to start taking that responsibility of dominion, of of ownership or, or rule over the animals on the planet. But this also proved to Adam and to us that no creature created thus far was worthy of being his counterpart, his face to face interpersonal companion in life. It had to be a woman. And so, to fulfill that need, God made the helper suitable. The helper suitable was not another man. That would not have been the suitable helper. Hey, two guys can get stuff done. Two two guys can build together. Two guys can go watch the game together. I mean, you know, two guys can do things, obviously. But another man is not a helper suitable to a man. A woman is a helper suitable to the man. By the way, another woman is not the suitable helper to the woman either. A woman needs the man. And the man needs the woman. That's how we were created. I'm not telling you anything that's not obvious in the Scriptures. I know we've messed it up. I know we've confused it all. But what the Bible teaches us is man was made for woman, and woman was made for man, and that's the deal. And when we do that, we're in the best place. When we don't do that, we create for ourselves all kinds of... Of problems. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And I really like that. It's almost like God says, sleep, Adam, I got this. You can't fix this. You can't 
fulfill your own need. You just rest. You close your eyes. That's a good boy. (laughs) And I'll take care of this. Another way to put it would be Psalm 46.10. Cease striving and know that I am God. So he put the man into a deep sleep. First anesthesia in the Bible, by the way. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the place, the flesh of that place. And some husbands might say, that's why she always gives me a ribbing. (laughs) No, but the thing is, that word is not rib. Now, I like a good play of spare ribs like anyone else, but this wasn't a spare rib. The woman was not made from a spare rib of man. The word is not rib. The word is salote in the Hebrew, and it's literally, he took one of his sides. It's not rib. He took one of his sides. He took of one of Adam's side. Now, people have gone with rib because, well, that's the closest thing. And Adam does say, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So it must have been a meaty spare. I mean, you know, it must have been that. It's simply that he took one of his sides, or of his side... Matthew Henry, kind of famously, you may have heard this, he said, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected and near to his heart to be beloved. I just think that's kind of sweet. By the way, back in verse 22, the word fashioned, the Lord God fashioned into a woman that which he had taken out of his side, the word fashioned is literally built. And I'm sure Adam thought she was. The idea... (laughs) You know, I actually sat in my office and thought, do I want to say that out loud? And then I thought, yeah, they know me. Eve was built by the Lord. Again, the idea is, get this, beautifully designed... Beautifully put together. And then once once he was finished fashioning the woman, he gives her as a gift to the man. It says, and God brought her to him. God brought her to the man. Adam, you're going to love this. You've just gone through all the animals with their furry faces and funky little, you know, gates and the way they move. and, and, and But look at this. I've just brought you this woman... When man and woman come together in marriage, it's always a gift from God. That's always his intention is this is a gift. This is a good thing. Now, what if they're not well suited together? Well, well, uh, you know what? Marriage is more about commitment than anything else. It's more about the faithfulness. She is a helper suitable. And you can love her like Christ loved the church. I don't care how different you are. The issue is are you willing to be faithful in the Lord? And to walk together. But marriage is a gift. Now this not only was the first anesthesia in the Bible, but it was the first surgery. It's also, note this, the first case of divine healing. Because God closed up the spot. And Adam knew what had happened. And so we have the first recorded words of man in the Bible in verse 23 where he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. This is my counterpart, he says. I can only imagine the elation that Adam felt in his aloneness when she came on the scene. (gasps) She's for me. She is comparable to me. She is my suitable helper. She's just right for me. So again, we get back to the question, how has it gotten so contentious, divisive, and sinful from the original gift of the male-female relationship? How did the world ever get here? And it's very simple. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's not just about idolatry. Uh, It is. But it's about more than that. When we elevate animals to be comparable with men, to be comparable with women, we mess the whole picture up. We mess up God's creative design, which was man and woman to be in dominion, as we said last week, over all the animals. 
But when we elevate the animals, we give them animal rights that are equal to human rights, and all of us share this planet together. And so now, I I can't wait for the Coexist bumper sticker to have little animal faces on it. Because that's coming. But we mess it up. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And by the way, the truth of God is both His innate character and it's the truth that He has declared. Exchanging this out for lies. Exchange the Word of God for a lie. What happens in government, and we're seeing it all over the world, and we're seeing the push for it even in our culture, and that is to exchange the truth of God for lies. For the books and the writings of man, let's set aside this one. This is the truth of God. And if you struggle with anything that I've said or will say this morning, it's because you're struggling with the truth of God. You're not struggling with Pastor Rick. It's not my opinions I'm sharing with you about male and female and female being the only suitable helper for man. That's what the truth of God declares. I'm just saying it because here it is. And I don't want to come up with something else. The truth of God, the Word is the truth. And we have gone so wrong by tiny, minute, seemingly insignificant moves away from the Scriptures. And the more we've moved away... This is why even in churches I get real uncomfortable when teaching is not out of the Word. When teaching is not supported and strengthened by the Word. When we start to have our thoughts and our feelings take precedence over the Word of God. It's a problem because 6,000 years in, we've been making these little tiny moves and now the world is out so far, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. At the very beginning, God established the standard of the one flesh, male-female, marital union for life. That's God's plan. That's His design. Look at verse 24. For this reason... Man, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that's the divine design. That is the biblical standard for marriage. And that is affirmed by Jesus Christ himself. That's the design. Now, I'm not yet talking about what we've done with the design and, and, the, and the failures that we've experienced and the things that we've done wrong. I'm just talking about what is the design and Jesus affirms it. Please turn in your Bibles over to Matthew 19. We've already referenced this a few times here early on in Genesis. I begin every marriage ceremony I give, every marriage ceremony I'm involved with, I begin with this passage. Because I want every young couple getting married to understand this is the plan. This goes all the way back. Let me let Jesus tell you, verse 4, after the Pharisees are asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They like the idea that you could do that. The Pharisees would say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and they're done. Offer a little certificate and out the door she goes, and he could divorce her for burning the toast. I mean, there didn't have to be any reason. There were schools of thought among the Pharisees that said it doesn't matter why the reason. A man has every right to just send her away if he wants to. She's not fulfilling his needs the way he sees fit. She's gone. And they know that. But they also know that that Jesus is between a rock and a hard place. If he doesn't answer this exactly right, they can take him to task. Either way he goes and he comes right up the middle and he answers and says, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Genesis 1.27 And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 This is the singular source for the foundation of marriage in all human history. Do you realize that? That we still have marriage today because of this source. That marriage and the idea of a man and a woman coming together and be married, being married together and becoming one flesh, that idea draws right out of the Bible. It does not draw from other cultures. It doesn't draw from other religious books. It's not like an amalgam of ideas that came together over time from all these different cultures. It comes from the Scriptures. Laid down at the very beginning... And continuing all the way to this very day. Anything other than what is described here is not marriage. Let me say that very clearly. Anything other than a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, male and female, anything other, according to the truth of God's word, 
is not marriage. Have I said that clearly enough? Because we have a culture that says there's all kinds of opportunity, all kinds of ways that you can define marriage. But not since the beginning. And not according to Jesus. Anything else is not this. It's not marriage. And it's described in three parts, very simply, leave, cleave, and receive. Leave your parents. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. For what reason? This is now bone of my bones, he says, and flesh of my flesh. The suitable helper was made for you and you for her. And by the way, that runs both ways. So you leave father and mother to be joined to the other and then you become the one flesh. I'm not telling you anything that's shocking right here. But by the way, I need to say this. It does run both ways, male and female. But it's not a denunciation of singleness. Not saying that you have to leave father and mother and be joined. I mean, but if you, when you leave, when you get married, that's what you're doing is you're leaving father and mother. One of the biggest problems young couples have in marriage is the in-laws. Trust me, I know. No, I'm kidding. I, mine were great. Still are. Yeah, I live with them, so it's good. It works. But the, the family relationship, there's all kinds of pull. Trying to pull you back into the family when... The Bible says, no, you leave. doesn't mean you, you just dismiss outright. In fact, I believe you still honor father and mother. I think we're called to honor father and mother all our lives. But you leave to be joined in a one flesh union, husband and wife. By the way, if you look down in verse 12, way down there, Jesus says there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept this. And what Jesus is saying is there are those who remain single. And that is a good thing too. In fact, Paul highlights that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. One who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So, singleness has great value if the person is single unto the Lord. And focusing life unto the Lord. So does that mean that marriage is kind of secondary to the holiness of a single wife? No, it doesn't mean that either. In fact, the best marriage is the one in which husband and wife seek to be pleasing to the Lord together. That's ideal. Some are called and some are conditioned to be single. And that's, that can be very godly. But the pursuit of a godly marriage calls a person out of their birth family into an exclusive relationship. Leave. And be joined. Number two, cleave to your wife. Now, don't think of Gimli and Lord of the Rings lopping off heads of orcs. Cleaving cleaving to your wife. It's kind of an Elizabethan sounding word, but the word cleave is be joined. It's debak in the Hebrew. Not debacle. That would be different. Debak. Debak literally means stick to. As a matter of fact, the modern Hebrew word for glue is debak. The idea here is that you are now, you leave father and mother and you are glued to your wife. Husbands. Gentlemen, are you, are you glued to your wife? Do you stick to her? In some cases, the word debak also means to follow hard after or to pursue. And it speaks to husbands. Well, this, this whole idea of leaving father and mother and, and clinging to, being joined to your wife, means, man, you pursue her. And you stick with her. And you look out for her. You go get her. Be joined to her, man. Permanently. 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 Again, I'm telling you what the Bible says. We're talking in marriage about an exclusive relationship that is intended to be a permanent Relationship. Now, some of you guys might say, follow after. I got to keep following after her? I got to keep pursuing her? Yes. Yes, you don't stop. It's not the old adage of the guy who said, I told you I loved you on the day we were married, and if it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> let her know. I don't think you can tell your wives you love them too much. I don't think that you can serve and chase after and, and romance your wives, gentlemen, too much. 
We are called to an exclusive, permanent relationship. You know, if you want a good godly marriage. If you want one that's a complete train wreck, then, you know, do it your way. Number three, (laughs) leave, cleave, and receive oneness. They shall become one flesh. And this literally speaks of the intimacy and the bond of a sexual union when a man and a woman are joined as one flesh. It's very specific. The word one we've talked about before, it's akkad. And there's a oneness that happens when a man and a woman come together physically that affects them mentally and affects them spiritually. Because remember from last week, we're triune beings. So when a man and woman come together and are joined in that physical union of sexual intimacy, it affects heart and soul as well. Heart, soul, body, the whole thing you're in. Which is why in our culture of sex and dating is such a disaster. Because you're giving heart, soul, and body every single time. And it's just being ripped and shredded apart. And I've seen more damage from that than any other thing in relationships. Sex outside of marriage. The oneness is supposed to be with one. And the two made one as God Himself is one. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4 The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Echad. Same word. The word used for Adam and Eve is the word used for God in His triune state. Absolute oneness. Echad. The, the rabbis really struggle with this because it's a word that means a compound unity. It's not singular. It is singular, but it's singular in unity. It's singular in its compound nature. And there is nothing in that oneness about dating around, about pseudo-committed relationships, playing marriage as if we're all in high school with no serious commitment. No offense, high school students. But that's not the idea. We have so messed with this. We, We have so torn apart the idea of a serious commitment to lifelong faithfulness. And there is certainly nothing in Akkad about being with someone sexually outside of the one flesh union of marriage. Why is this such a big deal? Why does it really matter? See, that's what culture would say. Yeah, I hear about you Bible stuff, you know. I understand you want to be moral. What's really the big deal? Adultery, divorce, division, bitternessness. Uh, bitterness, fatherlessness, motherlessness, loneliness, anger, pain, brokenness, ruin, suicide, homicide, including abortion, do I need to go on? What we have done, what humanity has done in dismissing the truth of God about marriage has been devastating for humanity and I have yet to meet a divorced person who was glad, who thought it was a joyful season, who enjoyed the time. You know, the spouses who divorced and met for lunch every day after court. No, what I hear, painful, hard, broken, upsetting, difficult, hard on the kids. I mean, and I don't need those of you who have gone through divorce. And please understand, I'm not sitting here in judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, can we recognize that divorced or not, every person in this auditorium has sinned and fallen short of that glory? So can we recognize that we are all in that same boat and do not feel like if you've been divorced, you've got some kind of stigma. That's not fair. If you have a stigma, so do I. And mine is a list of sins a mile long. We have all sinned. We all have brokenness in different areas. We're just dealing with this one right here because that's what was dealt with from the very beginning that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And back in verse 6 of Matthew 19, Jesus said this, They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses give her a certificate of divorce, or command to give her that, and send her away? And he said, note this, he said, don't miss this, because of your hardness of heart. That's the issue. Hard hearts. And listen to me, please. If you've suffered or caused or experienced divorce, God has not abandoned you. God has not turned His back on you. 
God has not cut you off. God hates divorce. Matthew cha- or, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says explicitly, God hates divorce. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say God hates the divorce. He hates what it does. And He hates the pain that it causes. Whether you wanted the divorce or not. And I think the most important prayer a person can pray following divorce, whether you have been hurt by it or you have caused it, is to pray, God, give me a soft heart. Don't let this heart go hard. Because when you've given something of yourself to another person and that gets torn away or broken, the last thing you want to do is see the other person. Why? Because you're ashamed. You're ashamed that you ever gave yourself that to that person in the first place. Pray for a soft heart. He'll give it to you. He's so good that way. Ezekiel 36.26 Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. Which means beating and alive and able again to be compassionate, loving, caring, and interpersonal. See, that's another thing about divorce is the hurt that it causes. God doesn't want us to shy away from interpersonal relationship which is what we were created for. So let Him heal that. And if that's you this morning, pray for a soft heart. Allow God to restore what was hurt and torn and broken. He can do that. God says, I'll put My Spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. Because there's something far greater here at stake even than the male and female union. And Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and then he describes it, in all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is a unity for all Christian relationships, and especially in Christian marriage. Be diligent to preserve the unity. Be diligent to preserve the bond of peace. Maybe you were driving here this morning and there wasn't a whole lot of diligence for unity in the car on the way to church. Be diligent to preserve what God has joined together. It's the ideal for all Christian relationship. Why Christian? Because it is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Spirit comes when you give your life to Jesus. The Helper comes alongside. John 17, verse 20, Jesus said, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, His apostles who He had been praying for, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. So when people look at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, they see love and unity. And they say, wow, that's different. That's a group of people that really does care about each other. Why? Because of the Spirit of God among us. Because our suitable helper has joined us together in a unity and a union before the Lord. And that's precious to Him. Why? Because we were created to be interpersonal beings like our Father. Now, why is all that so important? Because from creation on, marriage has pointed to Christ. He's, again, the issue. I I told you when we opened up Genesis, the issue of Genesis 1 and 2 is not all the proofs of our origin. It's not how things were done. It's not the science of it. Much of that is there, but that's not the point. The point is God. The point is knowing Elohim and then understanding He's He is Yahweh. He is revealing Himself to us and through us and in us and even in our marriages for this reason. Ephesians 5.31 tells us, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul quotes what Jesus quoted to say, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Then all the way back to the beginning, Paul recognizes by the Spirit that marriage is the closest we get 
to understanding the heavenly relationship of Christ and the church. And sadly, rather than being heavenly, it's been made hellish. And it's our sin. Listen, do you think the Christian relationship with Jesus, pure and perfect, or perhaps are many of our faith walks filled with adultery and unfaithfulness on our part? Oh, there's purity on the part of Jesus. How about you? Ever since you were born again, how has it been from then to now? Was it a perfectly pure marital union? Or did you walk away? Did you commit adultery, chasing after other gods, other idols, other things, other beings? Did you do impure things? Were you faithless to Him while He has all the while been faithful to us, our faithful groom, who while we have been going off in all directions, messing up the marriage we have with Him, He has been faithfully washing and cleansing and purifying us for Himself. And I'm not saying that this is okay, but the truth is, please understand that the aisle to the waiting groom at the marriage of the Lamb is scuffed and scraped and torn and stained with the mess of our humanity. Picture that, if you will. You know those runners they have at weddings that used to put a nice white runner down? No one's allowed to walk on it. Don't walk on the runner. I remember touching the edge of it with my foot just to see what would happen, you know. (laughs) The runner, this beautiful white runner... Christ is standing there waiting at the end of the aisle. And there we are, the bride. And by the time we get to Him, what does that runner look like? It's a mess. It's ripped up and shredded and dirty. And yet He waits. And He continues to purify and He continues to cleanse. And that's why I love how this whole section ends in chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, tells us there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare, literally open and naked, to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. All things are naked before Him. Guess what? Husbands, you're already naked, Adam. Wives, you're already naked, Eve. You were naked before you knew you were. We were naked before God before we realized that every aspect of our lives was laid open and bare before Him and no amount of fig leaves can cover that up. We have all been naked before the Lord. And then there comes that moment where you start to recognize the Lord and there's that shame that comes in. My friends, it is the marital ideal to be naked and unashamed. To be in that point where you're so comfortable with one another, it's fine. You're not whistling, husbands. (laughs) You're naked and unashamed. You're open. And you're vulnerable and you're honest and you're exposed to each other. But even the best marriage in this room would have to admit seasons of naked shame. Because of how I treated her. Because of how you were to him. And God says, no, 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 no. They were originally naked and unashamed. Adam experienced true joy and exhilaration at the realization he was not alone. But how long did it take for the man and the woman to become ashamed? Listen, here's the point. There is only one in marriage and in life. There is only one who can make us, cause us to be both naked and unashamed. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, right there at the end of the aisle, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is not calling you to shame this morning. 
If you have divorce in your past, God is not saying, all right, we got to go back there and, and, and wallow in the shame over that. And by the way, one man's opinion, but it's utter foolishness to say a second marriage should be broken so that you can go back to the first. And it's also, in my opinion, utter foolishness to say that there is a state of divorce. Once you've become divorced, you are now the divorced, and you can never be forgiven of that. I read in scriptures there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So if there's a divorce back there, why don't you leave it back there and come to the Lord? And let Him restore a sense of exposure without shame. Honesty, openness, vulnerability. He knows what happened. He doesn't want to drag you back through that. And neither do you need to go there. Just come to Jesus. So that He can sanctify and restore and wash and cleanse. Ephesians 5.27 That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. How did He do it, by the way? How did He provide for that holiness and blamelessness? He did it in another garden. John tells us it was a garden called Golgotha. And in that garden, God fashioned a bride from His side. John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out, signifying his absolute and unequivocal death at the cross. And 1 John 5.6, John says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with blood. What does that mean? That means that Jesus died to make right what we have made so wrong, so that while naked, we can again become unashamed. 